Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to tackle a topic that has become sort of an annual tradition in tech journalism in general and video game journalism in particular. And that is to discuss E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and whether or not there's still a place for E3. Is it still relevant? And to really get an idea of why we have this conversation, and we've been having it over and over. I mean, the earliest article I found with that sort of title was from 2012, and I have no doubt that there are even earlier versions. But to understand why we're asking that question, it would behoove us to know more about the history of E3. So back in 1994, several video game publishers came together to create what was called the Interactive Digital Software Association, or IDSA. This is what would eventually become the ESA, and that is the organization that oversees E3. But in the original days, it was the IDSA. And the purpose was to form a group that could create industry standards for rating video games. In other words, to indicate whether or not the game was appropriate for certain age groups. So very similar to the MPAA rating system for movies. So if you've ever picked up a video game and you've seen that rating system on there, that's from this organization. And this was in response to the threat of the United States government stepping in and regulating the industry itself. Joe Lieberman had proposed the Video Games Rating Act. So to get ahead of this and to make sure that the industry could remain in control of its own destiny, publishers, lots of the major video game publishers, got together and created the IDSA and the ratings system. And the IDSA didn't just stop with the rating system. That was its primary purpose for coming into being. But they came up with another idea in addition to that, and that was to hold a trade show exclusively for console and computer games. And this was to address two big challenges. The first was a practical challenge for IDSA itself. They needed to have some way to fund this organization. If it was going to exist to give out these ratings, it had to have enough money to operate. So how could the organization generate money on in that instance? And, and the trade show was a tried and true method. So that was reason one, a practical reason just to keep the IDSA going. But reason two had to do with visibility. Previously, game companies would exhibit at shows like the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in the United States. But that's an enormous show of all consumer electronics as a broad approach to electronics. And video games would get lost in the shuffle. They were often pushed off to a remote location far from the main traffic of the floor. Sometimes they'd be put in environments that were really unsuitable for showing off hardware. Uh, there's a famous story that Sega was determined not to go back to CES after being put in a tent in a parking lot and during a rainstorm, that tent proved to be less than waterproof. And so water was leaking down on video game consoles, and that was unacceptable. So video game developers and publishers found it really difficult to meet with retailers and press in order to get their products into stores and to promote their products. In other words, they were spending a lot of money going to these trade shows, and they weren't getting much out of it. 
And back in those days, which would be the early to mid-1990s, video games were more of a niche product. Even the best-selling video game of 1995, which was, at least according to most sources, Mortal Kombat 3, even that could be measured in the hundreds of thousands of copies sold. That's not bad, but today, when you look at best-selling games, those can hit several million copies sold. So it seemed like a good idea to organize an industry-focused event just for video and computer games. Companies would get an opportunity to showcase new hardware and new video game titles to retailers and to the press, and not have to worry about being shoved off in a tent in a parking lot far from the main show floor of an event like CES. Now, at first, the IDSA approached Gary Shapiro, that's the head honcho of the CES trade show in those days. And the IDSA reps made their case to him. They actually were first saying, can we get better, uh, you know, better consideration at CES? Can we get a better arrangement? But Shapiro's response was fairly dismissive. He essentially said, you guys aren't making quote unquote real consumer electronics, so you're not going to get a prime spot for the show. And Word of this meeting between the IDSA and Shapiro got back to a guy named Pat Farrell. And Pat Farrell was in charge of the GamePro magazine. And it uh, was also, at that time, part of a media conglomerate, IDG. And IDG already had experience running big industry events. IDG would run Macworld. So Farrell expressed interest to the ID's essay for pitching a trade show idea to them. But then that information got back to Shapiro, you know, the guy running CES. And when he heard that, he had a sudden change of heart, or more likely, he sensed the opportunity to make some real cash. And he announced that CES intended to launch its own games-only trade show. And the IDSA was kind of delighted because now they had two different parties that were eager to do this thing that they wanted to do. And so they invited both parties to pitch their ideas to them. And the two pitches were about as different as night and day. Shapiro's team was citing facts and figures and arguing that the prestige of CES could raise the profile of the video games industry in general. Meanwhile, Pat Farrell's pitch was from the point of view of video game companies and more importantly, it included an offer of partial ownership in the trade show itself. The IDSA would get around a 5% take of the gross revenue generated by the trade show. Shapiro, on the other hand, pretty much was demanding full ownership of the trade show. So it was kind of a no-brainer. The IDSA chose to side with the IDG slash feral approach. Now, that's not to say that all the companies in the video game industry were totally on board. Nintendo and Microsoft, for example, two big names, though Microsoft had yet to launch its own video game console, it was still very much involved in the video game world. Both of those companies chose to continue exhibiting with the CES approach. In fact, they said, well, we'll go with the CES-backed video game trade show. At least at first, that's what they'd said. Now, that would change pretty quickly, but it did show how in the early days, there was a lot of doubt about this endeavor and whether IDG could pull it off. Farrell came up with the name Electronic Entertainment Expo, and he would call it E-Cubed for short, but everybody else called it E3, and that name stuck. The original plan was to hold the event in Las Vegas, 
and it was going to be in mid-summer 1995. However, Shapiro planned the alternative games-focused show, the CES-backed version, and that was going to happen in Philadelphia in mid-May. So he was setting a show that would predate Farrell's show. He felt like he was being outmaneuvered, Farrell that is. And he was worried that if companies would commit to going to Shapiro's show, no one would commit to E3. So Farrell did something fairly crazy. He called up the Los Angeles Convention Center and he asked if they had the availability for the exact same dates as Shapiro's Philadelphia show. And it just so happened to have those dates available. So that's when Farrell decided he was not going to hold the event in Las Vegas and it would not be in midsummer. Instead, it would be in mid-May in Los Angeles, which he thought would be really attractive for Japanese companies because it would be just a single flight into LAX as opposed to having to land in LAX and then transfer to a different flight to fly all the way over to Philadelphia. And then he got on the horn and started to invite as many companies as possible to exhibit at E3. And he figured there's no way that these companies would be able to have a presence at two shows simultaneously. They would have to pick either E3 or the CES-backed games-only show. Now, Microsoft and Nintendo continued to hold out. They continued to back the CES side, but he got lots of other companies on board. And Shapiro, meanwhile, found that it was getting harder and harder to fill his show with companies. He had Microsoft and Nintendo on board, but everybody else was signing with E3. And he couldn't fill out the entire convention hall with just two companies. So ultimately, he decided that he had to cancel this Philadelphia exhibition. And uh, he reportedly called up Farrell and said, you won, and then hung up. And so uh, E3 became the only game in town, so to speak, pun intended. And that's when Microsoft and Nintendo finally came over because they really had no other alternative at that point. Now, once it became the only game trade show in the United States, E3 suddenly had no problem selling exhibition space in general. In fact, it ran out of show floor space at the convention center pretty quickly. And then they began to reserve hotel ballrooms in nearby hotels. So it began to expand beyond just the convention center. Sega and Sony were both really big presences at the, uh, at the show. They took up most of one of the two main halls at the convention center. And they were both showing off new video game consoles, uh, the Saturn and the PlayStation. Nintendo showed off a very early prototype of what would become the Nintendo 64, but was mostly focused on uh, SNES games at that, at that particular show. Also, they launched a beloved platform called the Virtual Boy. And yes, I'm being tongue-in-cheek there. The Virtual Boy is one of the famous flops from Nintendo, but they showed that off at that first E3. And you can actually see what the first E3 looked like. A guy named Anthony Parisi uploaded more than three hours of video footage that he shot during that 1995 show, and it's available on YouTube. Uh, he has footage of several press events, which at that time were much more businesslike in their presentation. I mean, think like PowerPoint presentations and guys in suits speaking in monotone to a crowd, not very uh, dynamic. And later on, those would obviously become much bigger budget showcases for companies and have a lot of theater wrapped up in it. But early in the 
E3 history, it was much more business oriented. Many booths, once you were on the show floor, would actually have a sort of stage show to kind of attract people to the various booths and and show off the games. And of course, even at the very first E3, there were the so-called booth babes, uh, women who had been hired as spokesmodels for those companies. The official estimate of attendees for that first E3 was at 55,000 people, although Farrell says that the number was probably more than that. It was enough to capture the attention of the mainstream media, and thus it elevated the trade show in the eyes of many, and it achieved one of the big goals that the IDSA had set in the first place. Uh, The IDSA eventually would be able to buy out IDG and become the sole owner of the E3 trade show. So the show would grow, though there were some problems. Not every year was a huge success. The third and fourth E3 had to move to a different venue. It ended up moving here in Atlanta. That was because there were scheduling conflicts with the Los Angeles Convention Center. They had already been booked for different events during the dates for E3. And uh, the Atlanta shows were not as well attended. Uh, It was only a temporary move. It kind of bums me out because if it had all worked out, I may be able to visit E3 and still sleep in my own bed each night. But that's not how things turned out. The booths would slowly get more elaborate over the years, uh, becoming more immersive experiences. So instead of it just being, you know, a couple of poles and some curtains to divide one booth from another, now they have booths that are made to look like the environments that were inspired by various games like Skyrim or Fallout or whatever. Booth babes would continue to be a thing, and the show got bigger and more elaborate and more audacious each year, becoming more like a, a party-like atmosphere until 2007. At that point, the ESA, uh, of course, was what the IDSA evolved into, reevaluated the show. And the reason they did that was because companies were starting to raise concerns about the expense around securing and building out a booth space at E3, because now it was costing millions of dollars to do it. And there was a growing number of attendees from smaller outlets like blogs, and they were making the show floor really crowded. And more importantly, it demonstrated a very small return on investment, that if companies were catering to these bloggers, but the bloggers had just a few or relatively few number of readers, then that was not a great return on the investment of time and effort on the part of the publishers. And it was making it really hard for industry attendees like retailers and larger media outlets to actually get their jobs done because of these crowds. And there were several companies that were considering withdrawing from the show entirely, and that could have caused a cascade effect with more companies pulling out. Like if the big companies pull out, then there's a chance that the medium-sized companies will pull out, and then a chance that the smaller ones will pull out. As such, the ESA decided to pare down the 2007 and 2008 E3 events to kind of prevent this from happening and to make it more manageable. And so 2007, it would become the E3 Media and Business Summit. And it sounded like it wasn't much fun. It sounds like it really wasn't, (laughs) like it was very much business-oriented and and, uh, also decentralized. It was spread out among a host of hotels and meeting spaces in Los Angeles. It wasn't in a centralized convention center Uh, It was also invitation only. There was an attendance of just 10,000 people for those shows. And it was all trying to meet these concerns. But the approach backfired. People began to question whether or not E3 
really me meant anything. They felt that it wasn't raising the profile of the video games anymore. So in 2009, E3 would expand back again, opening up for a much larger attendance, although they still limited it. They capped it at 40 uh, or 50,000, really. Now, since then, the event has grown, but some companies have withdrawn from E3. Nintendo no longer holds live press events at E3. They elect instead to do a video presentation called Nintendo Direct. Uh, the company does still maintain a presence on the show floor itself, however. Starting in 2015, the ESA began to release a limited number of tickets for the general public for E3. And in 2017, that would blossom into the policy of selling several thousand public passes to average video gamers. That has prompted some people, like me, to really dread going to the show because the added crowds make it super hard to get work done. I don't begrudge anyone having a good time. It's just hard to cover stuff if you can't get to any of it. And it's a similar concern that led to the ESA making that big drastic change in 2007. But so far, it doesn't look like it's going to repeat that. Now, this past E3, the 2019 E3, saw Sony abstain from attending. That was a big blow to the conference uh, in general. I mean, having a, a major console and games publisher uh, decide not to go to your trade show is not great. Although there were plenty of publishers that were showing off games that would play on Sony Playstations, uh, Sony itself wasn't there. Other big names like EA have also opted to hold their own press events on their own terms rather than run a press conference at E3 itself. Moreover, companies like Blizzard have been holding their own events for several years, and there are other big conventions like PAX that are designed from the start to be events where video game enthusiasts get a chance to try out games before they come out, and it gives game publishers the chance to connect with their fan bases. So all of this leads us to ask the question, is E3 still relevant with all of these changes that have happened? The original intent was to create a space where the relatively niche hobby of video games could be in the spotlight. But today, the video game industry is enormous and it's mainstream. It's no longer the relatively obscure business that was the laughing stock of the consumer electronics industry back in 1995. Heck, according to the market analysis company NewZoo, the industry, the video game industry in general, earned just shy of $135 billion in revenue in 2018. That's about three times as much revenue as the film industry. So video games are making three times as much money per year as movies. That's major. In the internet age, when it is relatively easy and less expensive to produce a video or do a live stream and to reach a huge audience on your own schedule and where there are already other events to cater to touching base with gamers, does it make sense to keep holding E3 or should something change? Well, when we come back, I'll be talking with Shannon Morse, who attended E3 2019 to get her perspective on the event and its future. But first... Let's take a quick break. All 
All right, guys, joining me on this episode is a dear friend of mine, a superstar when it comes to the world of reporting on technology, hacker extraordinaire, and just an incredible person, one of the most friendly people in tech I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, Shannon Morse. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me back on. It's super exciting to be here. I love whenever we have you on, you always have great insight. And uh, and I'm not joking, folks. She's like, there are like a couple of people on a short list of people in tech who have been consistently awesome. Shannon's on that list. Tom Merritt is on that list. They're very few and far between. So you are a treasure, Shannon. Well, Tom Merritt's Tom Merritt is one of my mentors, yeah. so I definitely look up to him, and I, I, well, thank you. That was really, really sweet of you to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's all true, so it's easy. But more importantly, for the purposes of this show, we are going to talk to Shannon about her experience at E3 2019, because as I've already explained, I did not go to that show. But Shannon, uh, you did attend E3 2019. Can you tell us uh, what you were there doing and, you know, what was your experience like this past year? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have been to E3 in the past, back in like 2014. Uh, so this was my second time going to E3 as a video host slash producer. So this time I was there with NVIDIA GeForce. They have their own YouTube channel. And I was just doing a bunch of interviews with a bunch of game developers. Uh, so I was specifically with them for one day before the show floor opened up to the public. And then the second day, I asked them if I could just stay an extra day. And I ran around on my own to get my own vlogs for my personal channel, which is youtube.com slash Shannon Morse. I hope you don't mind that I promote it. Not at all. But uh, (laughs) yeah, but the second day, it did open up to the public after I believe it was 1 p.m. So I got to experience both sides, one being it just for, you know, trade workers, people that are in the the game developer trade or there as press. And then I also got to see it open up to the public. So it was kind of interesting seeing it from both perspectives and being on the show floor to watch that happen. Uh, and that was the first time that it was open to the public since it wasn't originally when I when, when I first went to E3. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when The last time I went to E3, I think it was the second year that they started selling tickets to the public, you know, as you say, for years, it was industry only. And you were only going in if you were a developer or publisher, if you were a retailer or an analyst in the industry, or you were press. That was essentially the group. And then press got real loosey-goosey, just like at CES, where we have everything from the big outlets, you know, the big, the, the really big established Uh, media companies to, you know, mom and pop blogs that are run by, you know, Joe or Jane video gamer extraordinaire. And that's the only reason why I was ever able to go. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating it by (laughs) any means, but uh, it was a very different experience when I saw that too. Like the idea that uh, opening it up and, and having a very enthusiastic gaming public come in. What was your perception of how that was received because I have my own thoughts, but I don't want to, I don't want to color your perception with mine. I'd rather hear what you thought first and then we can talk about it. I, uh, well, my perception is that I honestly felt like this year's E3 was smaller Mm. and it might have been because uh, some 
major game manu- or brands like Microsoft, for example, Xbox, they weren't there on the show floor, neither was Sony. And that was really, really big news before the convention even happened. And even so, when a lot of people came in as the public at 1 p.m., uh, the lines were super long. They were crazy, crazy long. And it just it felt a little bit disappointing in a lot of ways, uh, just because the the show floor felt really small. It felt like it was a little overcrowded when the public came in and there were hours and hours long lines. So when I was there just on my own without the NVIDIA crew, it was almost impossible for me to play any games because the lines like at the Nintendo booth were four hours long. So honestly, I was I was a little bit disappointed that it was open to the public. And I think that if they had planned it differently, uh, like a lot of other expos do, like Gamescom and things like that, then it could have gone a lot more smoother with the public entering mm-hmm. uh, and then be a, a lot easier to get your job done if you are in the industry and still have a really good time. Um, you know, even when I go to video game conferences as public, because I don't always go as press because I like to play video games, too. I really like it whenever I can either, you know, set up a meeting or set up a, a time that I can go to a booth and play a video game or uh, the lines are are set up so that everything goes really smoothly. Mm-hmm. Like they have a whole bunch of different p- people playing games so that uh, like at different times so that the line just keeps on moving and it doesn't feel like you're sitting there for four hours. Uh, so that was kind of unfortunate. And I don't know. I feel like maybe they should move to a new venue. I have so many thoughts about this. I have so many thoughts. Yeah. I, I, so my, my uh, beliefs, by the way, that's uh, if you can hear Shannon's kitty cat in the background and I, I <laughs> sorry about no, that. No, no, I'm fully in favor of having kitty cats on tech stuff. If I were allowed to bring cats into the office, we would have them. Uh, but no, I, I was going <laughs> to say that uh, my perception is very much the same as yours in that from, from a press perspective, it is frustrating because it makes your job harder to do. And I don't want to say that, you know, other people shouldn't have a good time so that I can do my job and that I get to have all the fun and no one else does. That's not what I mean. Uh, But I do mean that things where you might've been able to cover maybe a dozen stories in a day, if you were really booking it, you're down to maybe three in a, in a typical day. And, And that's even booking the meetings with the different, publishers. Exactly. And then as a, I had four meetings booked the first day and that's it. That's all we were able to get in for just because it was so overcrowded. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, uh, if I were there as a ticket holder, let's say that I'm there as general public. So no longer wearing the press hat, I would have a very frustrating experience as you already alluded to this problem of standing in line for a very long time to play a, maybe a 10 minute slice of a video game because your perception of what you have going into it is that you're going to have a chance to play a game before anyone else does. So it puts you in an elite group. And there's a, there's already an attraction to being part of an elite group, right? You are part of a special few that were able to experience something before anyone else did. That's something that we all kind of crave at one time or another. I'm sure there have been times where you've had a chance to get your hands on certain technology or go to see a movie before anyone else And it's impossible to deny there is this sense of being special by being part of that group. And, you know, in the grand scheme, you take a a big step back. You think, oh, that might seem a little petty. I'm saying that as someone who experiences that whenever it happens to me. I I am not so big (laughs) that I don't still feel like, ooh, I get a chance to do something special. 
So I get the appeal, <laughs> but the problem is, the reality is, the capacity is limited. There's usually a yes. handful of titles that everyone really wants to check out, which means that those areas are completely slammed. Nintendo, just as a brand, is always in that group. Uh, I remember waiting in line to get a chance to try out the uh, the the 3D, uh, 3DS when it first came out. And I remember Brian Tong of CNET passing me by and he's like, Strickland, wh- <laughs> why are you in this line? I'm like, because I don't have a pass like you do for this. And this was before the general public was allowed in. So I was, yeah. uh, th- th- there was no general public that year. And so Tong's like, oh, well, I, I'm just going to go up to the front. I'm like, yeah, you work for CNET. Now, of course you're going to go up to the front. I don't get to do that. So he even belonged to an even more elite group. Uh, but but this is the sort of uh, frustration you can experience. And it makes me question about the, the wisdom of letting the general public in, not because it makes my job right. harder, but because I wonder if it does more harm than good because I can't imagine it's a very positive experience for your average attendee. No, it can't be. And I even looked at the day of prices for tickets uh, as general public, and they were over $900 if you decided to purchase the day of. Wow. Uh, The reasoning on E3's website was to, you know, keep it from getting too overcrowded. Mm -hmm. Uh, So on their website, they said something along the lines of uh, to prevent overcrowdedness, uh, day of tickets, purchased at the the convention floor at over $900. And I was like, that's insane. So it feels like, uh, to me, this is purely my opinion, but it feels like E3 is trying to make people online happy by introducing a public time that people can come in, no matter who you are. But at the same time, they're not growing out the venue space. They're not growing out the, the abilities for the boosts to get bigger mm-hmm. or anything like that to help with that huge change. They're trying to turn it into a convention, but it's still an expo for industry. And they're treating it like it's still industry, even though they're allowing all all the public in. I love going to public conventions. That's one of my favorite things to do. I love cosplay. I love playing video games. Like that is my life. I am a con goer for life. But going to this convention feels kind of confusing because they're dressing it to be very businessy. But for the public persona, what they're telling people online is we're still relevant. You should come to this convention. And it's not a convention. It's an industry expo. It's just weird. It's like it would be like it, uh, opening up CES to the general public, which I don't even want to mention. Yeah, exactly. That's a nightmare, nightmare <laughs> scenario. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where I agree that this 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 mishmash of approaches, where something that works for one type of event doesn't necessarily work for another, and you're, you're getting you're not getting the best of both worlds. You're kind of getting the worst of both worlds where it's getting right. very frustrating. I can I don't know how developers feel about this or publishers. I don't know if they find it frustrating with uh, this experience. Uh, I am very curious about their opinions, but honestly, I've never been able to talk with them about what is your perspective on this, the way that the event has changed. Does that is that something that you view as a positive or is it something that ultimately you worry about because obviously if the general public has a bad experience at E3 and it may have nothing to do with the actual quality of the game, it may reflect poorly on the games that are there. And then you get bad early buzz for a game that can kill a game before it even comes out. So that, that has to be a worry too. 
All right. Well, and there's still a lot of games that do introduce news at E3 mm-hmm. as opposed to doing their own personal uh, show or introduction or promoting it at Gamescom. So E3 still is the place where a lot of news happens. It's just not treating itself like that. Oh, well, that that segues really nicely into this discussion that comes up every year. Uh, I, I remember I did a search, just sort of a cursory search of is E3 relevant And, you know, there's no shortage of articles that pop up. And one of the earliest ones came from 2012, long before they opened it up to the public. So this has clearly been been an ongoing uh, annual exercise, I think. I think we we have the the life cycle of E3 each year is here's the hype before the show. Here's all the the rumors. Here are all the guesses of what's going to be shown off, who's going to come out with a new console. Then you have the initial announcements that predate E3 and people say, well, what's left to say at E3 now that these other things have been announced? Then you have E3 itself and you have the endless amount of analysis that comes out of that. Then post E3, after everyone's got that sort of the con crud, they're like, hey, is there any reason to even have this thing anymore? That seems to be every year. So... Shannon, is there any reason to have this thing anymore? (laughs) I think it still holds a little bit of a place in my heart, as well as a lot of other people who like to go there and be the first person to play a video game. So in that sense, like, it's still really fun to do so. But in the grand scheme of things, you don't really need a big convention like E3 that's for industry professional, but, but is inviting the public. I feel like... And a lot of people feel this way about CES, too. You can stay at home now and get all the news that you need and you can pre-order the games and still get early access to whatever you want. So in the day and age Mm -hmm. of social media and in the day and age of being able to contact a lot of these brands directly, you might not need this kind of industry event anymore. Yeah, I, I see that the Internet has really enabled companies to reach out to their their fan base directly and you can circumvent the need for the big centralized event. It also means that if you take that approach, then you can announce things on your schedule as opposed to a centralized schedule. We've seen this with CES. I mean, it, uh, my first year of going to CES, I believe was the final year that Microsoft was there. And then Microsoft pulled out the following year And the justification was, well, why should we have an annual event that's not under our own control where we're expected to announce all the things we plan to do that year? We would much rather do that on our own schedule. This is, of course, something that Apple had been doing for years and would continue to do so over the following years. And you're starting to see that with game companies too. Nintendo holds Nintendo Directs on a fairly regular basis, not just around E3, but also at other times of the year. Uh, PlayStation has their events that they're doing. EA has held their own events. So we're not just seeing it from console makers. We're seeing it from publishers as well. And whether you're holding an actual event, like a physical location where people are coming and they're playing the games, or you're more like Nintendo, where you produce a video ahead of time, which helps you really cut down on those cringeworthy segments because you can edit those <laughs> after you've shot them. Very <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we miss the cringeworthy segments because that's something for us to talk about, but it's it works better <laughs> for the company. Uh, but the fact that you can do that now removes a lot of the, the arguments you would use to attend something like E3. And in fact, I would think that that's part of why Sony's like, yeah, let's just skip this one. We don't have a console to announce. We're not ready to talk about it yet. 
uh, if we do, we can do it on our own time and we can get all the headlines instead of fighting for the headlines. Um, that's the other aspect, right? You don't get lost in the shuffle. Hey there, it's Jonathan from Post Interview with Shannon Morse. Shannon and I have a lot more to say about the E3 experience and its relevance, but before we get to that, it's time to take another quick break. Hey, it's me again. We're going to rejoin the interview I did with Shannon Morse, and we're going to pick up where we left off. She picks up about the merits of attending an event like E3. I would rather companies like that focus that insane budget that you have you you would normally have to pay at E3 to even get a booth and put it towards your developers or put it to, towards the people the artists that are working on the game. Like yeah. I would much rather them focus all of that money on the video game, yeah. not going to this industry event just to show off the game at at this one convention. Maybe maybe create a uh, uh, a production cycle for the game in a way where you try to avoid the awful crunch time as much as possible so people aren't working, you know, 120-hour weeks and and slowly dying or rapidly <laughs> yes, dying exactly. as a result. Because we hear those stories <laughs> all the time, too. Uh, I agree with you on that as well. So what I think there... I, I, th I think I'm with you. I think that E3 still has a place. I think it almost needs to turn into something more akin to what you see with PAX, right? Like the Penny Arcade Expo is all totally fan-focused. It is not industry. It's a place where video game developers frequently will uh, showcase games that are, that are not yet released and give people the chance to play them. And the fact that it was designed first and foremost as a fan-facing event means that it runs more smoothly in that context than E3 would. So seeing E3 transform like that might be useful. Um, I think that a lot, the way E3 goes now, the way it continues, it almost seems like it's uh, an argument to keep the ESA relevant, uh, <laughs> which that's the organization that throws E3, that, that organizes E3. Uh, the fact that they opened it up to public tells me a lot about that. There's also been a lot yes. of uh, a lot of like rumors and and nasty news coming out, like fighting within the ESA over the last couple of years. That it, it doesn't make headlines for most video game journals. I mean, there's some out there. Polygon will always cover that kind of stuff, but uh, a lot of a lot of industry magazines haven't really covered it. But the fact that there's been a lot of internal drama at the organization that throws this also brings up the question of relevance or at least how healthy is the event. Uh, I would like to see it kind of skew away from the trade side. The only thing that makes me nervous about that is there are some developers, some publishers, uh, especially the independents that are pretty small and they depend on E3 for discovery. Uh, it, it tends to be the stuff that doesn't necessarily make the big stage at any of the press events, but people will discover it on the floor and then it'll generate buzz. Uh, the one I think about that I had not heard about at all until I encountered it on the show floor was Octodad, which was such a bizarre game. Oh, yeah. Such a weird game and such a, a challenging and fun concept and uh, so different from everything else you were seeing. It wasn't a shooter. It wasn't a racing game. It wasn't a sports game. 
you were an octopus posing as a human being who had pulled the wool over your family's eyes and you had to try and maneuver these crazy limbs of yours. There's a phenomenal concept that I don't think would have ever gotten the notice that it did without its presence at E3. So in those cases, I get a little nervous because there's some actual great work that otherwise wouldn't be discovered without E3. Uh, The problem I see is that for all the other bigger names out there, why not just have your own event or have your own internet-based event where it's not necessarily people coming to play the game, but at least they get to see what the announcements are. Um, And it frees you up to not having to worry about having this this external schedule where you may or may not have anything to show. Uh, Right. You know, it, it means that maybe Bethesda would get a break for not having more Skyrim stuff to show off, for example, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. the Elder Scrolls stuff. Um, you know, everyone starts yelling at companies when they have teased something and then like a year goes by and you don't get an update. And that's because the development cycle for video games has grown to be longer than for a feature length film. Yes, um, it's a very long time. And uh, one th- one thing that I did see from a lot of the companies that I interviewed at E3 was they did not have news for us. Like, they didn't announce anything new. They were just giving us a few little updates here and there or talking to us about the technology in the game. <laughs> My cat just sneezed. No. But as as it goes for, you know, release dates and when they're going to introduce ray tracing and stuff like that, a lot of the companies just couldn't share that information with us. So at those points, I would much prefer that they just have their own press event and share their event or share their news at that event, as opposed to feeling, you know, kind of stressed about E3 or feeling like they're forced to go there. Cause I feel like uh, some may not necessarily be ready. And, uh, it it would be a lot more beneficial for those game developers to just, you know, do their announcements on their own terms as opposed to having to do it at E3. But you make a really, really valid point when it comes to independence, independent games. Uh, game manufacturers, you see this at like GDC as well. Like they really, really value those events quite a bit because those are the only times that you see a lot of uh, press and journalists go out and check out all these interesting things that they can find on the show floor. You see the same thing at CES too. Like some of mm-hmm. the biggest hits are just the most random and weirdest things, but indie game manufacturing definitely does rely on those kind of events. So maybe E3, instead of trying to focus on trying to get this middle ground of we're going to be a public conference as well as E3 expo for industry, do one or the other. Like do GDC or do Gamescom slash PAX, but stop trying to confuse everybody and stick them both into the same venue space, which is way too small for everybody. Yeah. Or if you're going to be E3, then focus, maybe change your focus to be on things like the smaller developers, the independent developers, so that uh, those are the, the focus. Because again, the big companies, they're pulling out anyway. So if they're pulling out anyway, yes. then change the the thrust of your show to put these other ones on a pedestal even if they were to to separate out the event more where you have kind of like CES where you have the press days before the actual show floor opens now granted on those days you're not typically touring the show floor 
because those booths are still rapidly being put yeah, together. Yeah, they're still getting set up. <laughs> with duct tape and spit and everything. If you've ever been to CES before the show floor officially opened, you've seen people just frantically trying to, to get a booth in shape. Um, all Everything happens all the way up to and including when the doors open on that first day. So there's not much for you to be able to actually do. But if they were to divide up the show so that they said, all right, let's say it's going to be a three-day event. And day one is going to be treated like it's a full open day, but it's just press. It's just press and industry, and that's it. So one day you get the normal sort of pre-public E3 experience. And then after that, you make it the public event. It's still hard to do because you still are working within the same facility. So it's not like you can magically make the booths, you know, change in modular Bigger. form. Yeah, they don't get larger, <laughs> better traffic flow. But at the at the very least, you can, you can, which they sort of did this past year, it sounds like, with the, the one o'clock opening time. Yeah. You at least got the first half of the day. Yes. But still, that's, that's limited. Um, I remember one year I went to E3 and I was waiting in line with everybody else to get in because as far as I could tell, my badge just allowed me in normal hours. But the person, one of the security people working the line walked up and saw my badge and they said, you know, you can go in right now. I said, what? The show floor doesn't open for another like 15 minutes. I said, oh, no, no, your badge allows you to go in right now. I said, oh, all right. So I walk in, but no one was, no one was ready to show anything. So it didn't like, if I had had an appointment, (laughs) it would have been fine, but I didn't have an appointment. So really I just felt like I was a extra person in a giant convention hall that looked lost because that's who I was. I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't actually do anything. There weren't any games to play or anything yet. Everyone was hurriedly setting up their booths. So um, I do like that e I do like that E3 has the press hours or yeah. the industry hours before the public comes in. Um, but it's it feels like they the location and the physical space is just big enough for industry. It doesn't feel like it's big enough to be inviting the the public in as well yeah. as, you know, regular attendees. Um, so I think that it would be a lot better if they move to a larger venue to introduce a lot more people and to allow the booth makers as well to broaden how large their booths are and how many games they're allowed to, you know, set up there. Yeah. And I, I, my cat's sitting in a box. <laughs> <laughs> if it fits, it sits. I, she yeah, does. I remember, I remember a, a year at E3 where, um, uh, I think it was, it was probably, uh, which company was it? I, I remember that there was one year where it was this enormous booth and it looked amazing from the outside, but it was also invitation only. Uh, and I did not have uh, an invitation. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was one of those experiences too that gets frustrating. And that still happens as well, where you have certain exhibitors who they do appointment only uh, uh, showings. So you can't just walk up and play stuff. So there's also that uh, experience, which can be a negative one. If you've bought a ticket to go and then you're like, well, I can't even play everything that's on here because I'm not even allowed into that space. Uh, that ends up getting a cross message, cross signal as well, right? Because you're thinking, I bought a pass and now you're telling me that the pass is not good for what I want to do. It feels like it, it almost feels like a bait and switch, even though for those of us who have covered E3 for years, we know that's just the way certain things work, that certain developers... They're like, yeah, we we will uh, arrange ahead of time when you can come and you know, tour the booth, play the games, talk to developers. But otherwise, if you haven't done that, you're out of luck because there's no walk-ups. So that's also a, a challenge. 
I agree with you. I think that really, if they want to have this public-facing approach, which I understand their reasoning for doing so, they need to move to a different venue. Uh, the I'm not sure that there is one in Los Angeles that would really fit the bill. The convention center is pretty big, but it's not big enough for what they want to do. Uh, you would pretty much have to go to someplace like Orlando, which has enormous convention centers, or, of course, Las Vegas, known for CES. Uh, even CES has way outgrown the convention center. They have uh, the the complete Sands Expo Center is filled as well as the Las Vegas Convention Center. And then there are plenty of hotels that host their own booths and officially and otherwise <laughs> that are connected to CES. So it's, it's I don't know what the solution is for them to go forward to this approach. Uh, if I had my druthers, they would go straight to the just trade industry route and say, let's scale it down. Scaling down is not necessarily a bad thing if we do it in the right way. They tried scaling down a few years ago, but that was like a disaster because it was kind of a such a drastic change that it nearly killed the event for all time. That's when they turned it into kind of like, it's all in business suits and we're just going to talk code. And Oh yeah, they took all the personality out. I mean, granted, it had gotten to the point where it had become sort of a party con and it was hard to do business, but they, they overcorrected when they tried to address it sounds like the, it sounds like the separation between DEF CON and black hat. (laughs) Yeah. DEF CON is the party con for hackers while black hat is the suits and tie convention for hackers. Yeah. 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 That's not a, not a bad way of comparing it. It it was one of those things where it was just kind of getting out outrageous with things like booth babes and all that kind of stuff. Like the ridiculous over the top, trying to attract anyone into any booth that they could, uh, switching over to, well, let's make this serious because we're a, we're an industry event. Um, and then trying to find some middle ground after that, which they did for a while, then the opening up to the public changed things again. So uh, I think we both agree that E3 probably still has a place, but in its current incarnation, it is not fitting in well either as an outreach to gamers or as an industry event for people who are potentially going to carry games in stores, although who the heck does that anymore, or the press covering (laughs) it. Um, Everything's online now. Everything's digital now. So any other uh, observations you made this year at E3? Anything that particularly stood out to you before we conclude this part of our episode? Uh, what I was think your f- we about covered everything. What was the, your favorite thing that you saw? Were, uh, definitely not the booth babes. <laughs> there were booth babes there at, yeah. at a like some kind of energy drink booth, which yeah. was very, very unfortunate and disappointing that they were there. A lot of the publishers uh, have definitely absolute, pulled back. Yeah, <laughs> my favorite thing was probably getting to play Borderlands 2. And I did stand in line for two hours to play that game. Uh, the, the vlog 3. day that I spent or Borderlands three. Yeah. Yes. Borderlands three. And it was incredible and so fun. And they definitely made it worth it. They like had a swag bag at the end of it. And they did let you watch like a 30 minute demo of some of the new characters and the new maps. So they really made it something that was enjoyable. Uh, they even had like streamers set up in little glass boxes along the line. <laughs> so you could watch people streaming the game like a bunch of Twitch streamers, 
while you're walking down the line. So you could see like if you're a big fan of Twitch streamers, you could see some of your like favorite e-celebs in these little glass boxes as if they were like in a little human zoo playing Twitch games. So that was pretty cool. Well, I really liked their booth. It was fun. The Twitch streamers I know, uh, the, being put into a zoo is not, is not, uh, inappropriate, <laughs> but, but these are I mean, friends of mine. So I'm, I'm going to be a Twitch streamer. I'm going to be a Twitch streamer one of these days. So I, I think I would be perfectly fine if somebody stuck me in one of those little glass <laughs> boxes and told me to play a video game for two hours. <laughs> yeah. I was watching, I was watching some of those Twitch streams at the time too. And, uh, and it was always interesting to see the, uh, the the different approaches to that uh, also it's it's nice because you see the the agreement the tacit agreement between publishers and streamers about how that relationship is valuable to both parties right that the streamers mm-hmm. would not have a career were it not for these games and the games get an incredible amount of uh publicity and support through the marketing that's done by these streamers i mean you could argue that games like fortnite wouldn't be nearly the success that they were without the streaming community. So it's nice to see that. That's one of those elements that has come up uh, since I started going to E3 that I think is um, a positive. That's something that is also kind of bridging that gap between industry and fan outreach. Uh, but it is, maybe they do just need to m- move more toward that that route and just say, Let's take a more convention stance to this, but let's design it like a convention. Maybe bring some people over who have run those kind of events to redesign yes. how E3 works. Yeah. That would be amazing. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us and telling us sort of your perspective on E3. It was useful to talk to somebody who actually went through it. And it was nice that you got a chance to compare it to the earlier time when you went when there was no public uh, uh, entry into the the convention at all. So you had a chance to see it in both formats and kind of weigh them against each other. That's useful. Tell people where they can find all your stuffs. Uh, you can find all of my stuffs. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That's where I am most active. I am at snubs, S-N-U-B-S. And I just started uploading a ton of videos at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Shannon Morse, which is just my full name, really easy to spell, uh, which is where you can get tons of tech vlogs and travel, well, tech reviews and travel vlogs. That's what I should have said. So (laughs) I do have a bunch of videos going out over there. Um, I've been very, very active as well. So I really appreciate the support that everybody has been showing by subscribing. Yep. And, uh, like I said, Shannon's awesome. You don't have to take my word for it. Just go check out her stuff and you'll you'll come to the same <laughs> conclusion. I mean, like the evidence is all there. So And you, know. you can actually see my cat on the video sometimes because yeah. she does annoyingly like to come on set, even though she's adorable. I I understand entirely. This is why I can no longer record at home because my dog Tybalt would insert himself into he would yodel <laughs> in the background of every recording. <laughs> because if, if I'm talking and it's not to him, he is personally offended. So, Shannon, thank you so much for joining the show. I can't wait to have you back on. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure, as always, and I really appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank Shannon for joining the show. And that's our look at E3 and whether or not it's still relevant. I think you could come down on either side of that debate. 
But I also think that just about everyone would say that the event needs to evolve a bit in order for it to meet whatever goals it has set out for itself. It also needs to define those goals. What is the purpose of E3? It needs to be clear about that and to really make certain that the execution of the plan is done with those goals in mind. Because as it stands right now, it's not entirely clear what E3 is supposed to be. And therefore, it's hard to say whether or not it's being successful. Lots of people are going to it, but is it actually achieving any goals? It's hard to say if you don't know what the goals are. Well, we'll see how this continues. I mean, there's no doubt that E3 will come back again. They've already secured the Los Angeles Convention Center for 2020. So I'm sure we will have another one to talk about in that year. But I do hope that the ESA is is putting some real genuine thought into what E3 is and what it should be. And if that is a fan-centric event, that's fine. It just needs to be designed like one. In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know. You can send an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or pop on by techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website where we have an archive of all of our previous episodes plus links to our social media accounts and to the online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 